originally got in as, as a programmer, but be involved with a redesign, sitting there a little bit like an anthropologist sitting in the user's environment. Welcome to Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. Now, here's your host, Craig Shoemaker. So are you a developer or a designer? Now, be careful there because designers aren't just the turtleneck-wearing, gray-toting, Photoshop-loving people that sit in the other room. No, being a developer, you have design control over many aspects of the user experience. Today, we're talking to Michael Maymoff, author of Ajax Design Patterns and the man behind SoftwareAS.com. He's going to talk to us today about learning user experience design and building pattern languages. For show notes, please go to getpixelated.com slash shows slash UX design. So it's been just a little bit since we last spoke, but, you know, for good reason. Uh, we've been working really hard over at Infragistics getting out the testing done, at least, for the latest web data grid that's going to be coming out with our new release of the tool set. So I've been involved in that, you know, trying to make uh, make it as solid as we can for for you guys as you use those tools. And if you remember, Josh Smith was working on a project with Grant Hinkson. Um, creating a podcast aggregator and, and uh, he was holding a contest to see who could come up with the best skin um, and the the prizes were pretty good actually uh, whoever won was going to be able to get to be taken out for a nice steak dinner next time they're in New York City and also be interviewed here on Pixel 8. So we have a winner his name is Brendan O'Connor and let's check in with Brendan for just a few minutes and talk about his work that he did for the Potter Skinning competition. We're here to talk about the the Potter skinning competition, and from what I read on on Josh's post about how you entered and got into this, you, you'd never touched WPF before. Can, can tell us a little bit about that. Uh, that's, I suppose it's true. Yeah, like I've I've read a couple of stuff on it, like books, and um, I read a couple of articles. You know, I'd follow it kind of from the sideline for the last couple of months. I never I never actually done anything in it from even a sample application, but. Uh, once I found out there was stick involved, I said I better enter. <laughs> so how did you how did you first approach this? Because really, for me, the thing that's really intriguing is that the big thing about approaching WPF is is the learning curve. And here you were able to to pick up enough to to make a, a really well working, uh, not a functioning app. You had that to work with, but you had a skin and and was able to to do something pretty significant with it. So where did you start? I just started playing around with uh, the, the list views and, and the list boxes to see if I could get even just uh, the list of podcasts in. And then after that, I just kind of started building on top of it. I, I really only started it, I think, about the 1st or the 2nd of August, and it was due in on the 4th of August. So I was kind of learning as I was going along. So uh, it's still a bit rough, you know. It wasn't. It's not the greatest, but... Um, it was a decent first attempt by myself. So looking back now, um, what would you have done differently or what would you still like to change? Uh, uh, some of the styles I would have liked to change, it still, it still kind of looks, um, I don't know, it kind of still looks a little wind forms in places. And I suppose I would have liked some maybe uh, different sort of views maybe on the actual episodes or the podcast, you know. Like it was just a, a standard list as it is, but you know, maybe something could have been done there to schnaz it up a bit. Well, thanks so much for coming and sharing with us. Thanks very much, Craig. All right. 
Well, congratulations to Brendan. And if you want to check out his work, you can go over to Josh Smith's blog. You can check out the page for Potter. You'll see Brendan's work and also everyone else's work. Hey, I do want to let you know we're going to be having a lot of fun at PDC this year. I have a number of interviews lined up that I think are going to be a lot of fun. I'm not ready to announce exactly who's going to be there, but uh, there's certainly people that you've heard of that you read their blogs hopefully that you enjoy their work. We're having a a big booth at PDC. We have this Hollywood theme going on and and we're going to have people come to the booth for interviews. If you're going to be at PDC, please drop me a line and let me know. I'd love to have you. Uh, The guests that will be there will will field questions and uh, hopefully make it a fun and engaging event. And as always, you can send email to show at getpixelated.com and uh, we'll make sure that you're set up for that. So now let's talk about designing user experiences. Now, a lot of times developers think that they fulfill a certain role and, and that there's very clear lines around that role. And at the same time, the developer has a huge part to play in what it's going to be like for people to use the software that's created. So sit back, let's talk to Michael Mamoff about learning user experience design and also his work in building pattern languages. Well, Michael, welcome to the show and you have a, a very interesting background you have a background in psychology and, and software engineering and and all of that and, and instead of me trying to butcher your background I was wondering if you could just tell us about where you come from and where your passions lie okay sure and thanks for having me on Craig I think uh, well it started yeah as you mentioned uh, the background is uh, I was always into software and programming and so on but also into the psychology side of things so that's what I studied is those two areas, psychology and software engineering. And I was able to combine them in my PhD. So it was, it was a good thing that I was able to choose a discipline that does actually integrate the both of them, which is obviously human-computer interaction. And so a lot of what I've done since then has been focused on that kind of uh, overlap area between those two disciplines as well as what I also covered in the PhD, which was patterns, which is a good tool for combining more than one discipline, really. So any two disciplines. So when, as a programmer, when, when you're approaching a new project or a problem, what role does psychology play for you? So as a programmer, a lot of the projects I've worked on, I've tried to focus a lot on the users and the user interface. And so I think probably most programmers have the experience of, of actually sitting in front of uh, if not users, ideally users, but if not uh, their advocates and clients. And so I'm often interested during those conversations to get down at a very low level and really understand, try to grasp exactly what is going to be the user experience. I think that that, that term user experience has come into the vernacular in the past few years and I think it's a really good way to describe it's like a a way of almost looking at you know from the user's eyes almost like thinking about a video of exactly what the user experiences and so I would just tend to to be empathetic to that Uh, even if we're talking about things that are very technical always try to uh, to translate that back into the actual end user experience and from there that means you start to pay a lot more attention to those things so are, are you a designer as well? Would, would you say you have the artistic flair? 
not not from a graphical point of view. Certainly, if anyone's seen a lot of the work I've done, uh, <laughs> you'd say I'm not exactly a graphical designer. I think, uh, to some extent, a user experience designer. Well, and I, I think this is an important point because I, I think a lot of programmers get hung up on the fact that they can't or perhaps don't want to really focus or pay attention to this area because you know the whole cliche is I can't even draw a, a circle. Right. Yeah, we were to that's sort of missing the point, isn't it? That it's a, a lot about well there was a diagram from years ago showing this iceberg model that said that the actual user interface is ten percent of the the overall the benefits the user gets from the system. The dialogue, the human computer dialogue is thirty percent and sixty percent of it is just the actual functionality that the raw functions that the, the system has. So what do you mean by the human-computer dialogue? In real terms, what would that be? What could we think of? It would be the flow. So say for a system like Amazon, it would be like, how do I actually go and order a product on this system? What are the the, the clicks and, and flows that I have to go through that I see a list of books, say, and then I narrow down, look at one book, click, I get another page, and then I go through and do my checkout and I get confirmation. That whole back-and-forth flow is really the dialogue. When we were talking a little bit before we set up the interview, you said that you could point to some some interesting applications of some of your work in banking and trading systems. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I think uh, something that has been very interesting is working on these uh, trading systems where they're front-end systems and the traders work at a very frightening pace. I mean, they're talking about sort of, you know, milli, really milliseconds. It's like almost like a video game uh, where they're holding positions for maybe 30 seconds and they have to release it straight away as soon as they see a price change and so on. So that's a system where uh, I had an opportunity one time to actually do some usability on it and uh, I originally got in as, as a programmer uh, but they were going to actually stop the programming. Luckily, I was able to do that and actually uh, be involved with a redesign and that involved a lot of contextual analysis. So this is the, the notion of sitting there a little bit like an anthropologist sitting in the user's environment and actually trying to understand the forces and the, the constraints that they work under and trying to understand who they're working with and the pressures they have and so on. And, uh, and that led to quite a radical rethink about how the whole thing works. And uh, I can't detail too much about the system, but essentially we were moving it from a situation where the traders would be uh, kind of micromanaging every single trade and actually saying, now I'm going to sell it for this, now I'm going to buy it for this, to more a system where the trader is kind of steering a ship and actually just uh, generally setting the prices and letting the system uh, make the actual trades themselves. And so it was a case of actually by studying the actual users in their environment, you get a lot more information than if you just ask them, what would you actually like to have? So how did you do this? Did you literally sit with them? Did you video them? I did. I actually uh, sat with them. Uh, I think videoing, it could be an issue. Well, firstly, it can be a regulatory issue in some cases. <laughs> it's a, 
uh, people in, in, in some industries too, when I've worked with people, people can start to get quite paranoid about why they're being filmed, you know, that, yeah. or even just uh, even observed, you know, because they, especially in other environments where I've worked in that are more unionized, you know, if uh, people get, <laughs> get worried about their own jobs, if, um, if they've got people observing how fast they take and so on. So a lot of it's just a matter of <laughs> setting them at ease firstly and explaining what you're actually doing there. And, uh, and so it was really a matter of going to a few different places uh, where there would be where the users were. So there were, in this case, different trading centers in different uh, different cities, and uh, being able to sit with them. And actually, what I've found quite useful is actually making sure that you're there at different times. Uh, so trying to trying to identify what are the critical times. In this case, with trading systems, you get a lot of the time where traders will hand over to someone else in another country. So picking those critical times, picking times when uh, when it's slow, picking times when it's fast, like when there are press releases, and uh, and trying to get a good cross-section of, of the overall uh, flow. So I was sitting with them and uh, really just a lot of the time it's observing rather than actually talking to them, but I also like the notion that they do know you're there. You can't really pretend to be sort of hiding in the shadows, so you can actually uh, talk to them and try to understand what they're going through uh, in their quieter moments as well. So as you're doing this, and, and I think you made an important point there, you said, you know, try to be there at different times. So I, I just, I'm kind of imagining in my head if you had just regular Joe Blow software developer doing this observation and you had someone that has your experience, what kind of questions or what things are you looking for that might be different than someone who doesn't have this type of a, a man, mindset? Uh, what I'm doing, I mean, a lot of it's really just from experience. I think a lot of the time in these areas in human-computer interaction and software engineering when uh, people can come up with very fancy methodologies, but a lot of it really is just down to having the experience. So I think, uh, you know, differentiating myself from, from a Joe Blow developer, if anything, is more to do with the fact that I've, I've uh, put myself forth for these sorts of opportunities to be able to observe people and actually... Um, and actually seeing how the whole thing works. Uh, and so from from the point of view of design all the way through to a system actually running and then hopefully going through the whole cycle again once the system's been there. So the sorts of things I would be that, that I might have noticed that other people might not have noticed would be, uh, let's see, things like uh, if, if well, pressures from uh, from other managers or from other, other colleagues, for instance, and those are the sorts of things that if someone was just looking at the screen, they might not pick up on, you know, because it's not actually something that's inside the system. But uh, if, uh, say, you find that people will often uh, use use other people's workstations, for instance, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll often log in, uh, depending on the system and the security and so on, you'll often find people will go and, and, and log in as someone else and then you might want to take that into account <laughs> somehow in the system. Uh, you know, the, the the standard response would be to lock them out, but you know that's not always the best thing to do, especially say if system safety critical. Uh, you know, finding ways to deal with that. So, for instance, that's an example where you you uh, get on more modern operating systems, you get the ability to log in as a different user, right? Because they they realize that that's something that happens more often than just forcing someone to say reboot. Right. Uh, so. 
it's a lot of those things that go on outside the system. It's the fact that, you know, watching when people take breaks, you know, what happens after someone comes back from a break, how often do they take breaks, do they go off for lunch, things like that. Um, things like, okay, so looking at those critical events, just being aware that there are different ebbs and flows in someone's daily interaction with a system and what might be optimal while the system is running in its normal pace once things start to heat up, uh, if you're a normal developer and you've only gone in there just to see how a user works with it for 10 minutes, just some random moment, you won't actually see them working at it in anger uh, you know, during, during some critical time. Well, now, you just talked about breaks, and the first thing that I thought of was how how do you know that people are acting the way they would if you weren't there when you're doing this stuff? <laughs> yeah, that's a, the Schrodinger's <laughs> cat question, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, just an inevitable thing about any time you observe people in any kind of psychological setting, you know, that, that they are always going to be uh, observed. There's also this uh, this famous... Uh, study or, or famous phenomenon called the Hawthorne effect, which says exactly that, that people change uh, when you observe them. And uh, and it's not an easy thing. And I think, uh, well, a few of the things that you can do, firstly, you can make sure that you're there for a long period, right? Because if you start mm. to be there for a few days, <laughs> people at some point have to do the, the <laughs> optimal thing for their job. And, um, and, and you know, either they, they if they're, if they're trying to impress you, then they'll, they'll stop impressing you after a while. And, and uh, the contrary is if they're, trying to, if they're spending too much time being distracted by you, then eventually uh, they'll, they'll just um, no longer be distracted by you. So that's one good thing. Uh, another good thing is to be explicit about why you're actually there and, and just let them know that you, you're not actually <laughs> trying to measure their performance or anything. So uh, you just really want to see how they actually interact on a day-to-day basis. And uh, and also uh, just being cognizant of the fact that of the fact that they are working, respect that, and try to sit back a bit. So I'll try to uh, after a while learn the knack of actually hanging back a bit and observing them, but still uh, finding enough moments when they seem to be a little bit quieter uh, to actually have a chat with them about what they're actually doing. So you're not sharing breath mints with them or anything like that. Oh, breath mints. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, well, it depends on the environment. Sometimes, so another place I worked in with it was a, in a hospital where there was an intensive care unit and there were quite a lot of different places to go to and a lot of it was observing uh, the nurses and the doctors doing their rounds. So it was quite a, a much larger environment where everyone was quite happy uh, to talk about the system. So in that case, you're moving around a lot more and that's good too, uh, whereas other cases it can be just sitting one-to-one. Now, in the documentation that you sent me, you had over 20 safety usability patterns documented. Was that part of your PhD thesis? That was. That was one of the pattern languages we developed. And you've been involved in, in a couple different one of these because you did the Ajax patterns book as well as these safety usability patterns. How do you, how do you start building a pattern language? All right. Well... The, the way that actually the safety patterns was probably a good example of that because we were starting to get familiar with the whole concept of, of how we go about building these pattern languages and what we did in that case we, we actually were lucky enough to have to have uh, 
Andrew Hussey, who was a, an expert in, the, in that application domain of safety critical systems. Uh, so he was able to give us a bunch of case studies that we were able to use, some of them, some of them from his own work and some of them that had been published, although there was a, <laughs> somewhat of a scarcity of that because of the nature of the industry. But uh, we took all those studies and we basically went through and mined them for useful features. So if we were if we were to find an individual study on, say, an air traffic control system, we'll basically go through and we'll say, we'll look for three or four features that someone's done that we, they've probably explained in a paper why they were a good thing, or in other cases, we can just observe them and, and infer why they've done it in a certain way. And what we ended up was with was a was a just a massive set of uh, post-it notes, you know, with all these features. And at that point, we start to cluster them together. And we say this feature is more or less the same as this, even though one of them is a traffic control system and the other one's a nuclear power plant. They're kind of similar. And you start to do this clustering, and then eventually they form into clusters. And you can give a, each cluster a name, which is going to be the pattern. Now. When you're doing this, it seems like building the pattern language, is, is it just a first-to-market type of thing? I mean, since nobody had done this before, you were able to come and, and, and put these into place. Like, like, how does that work as far as... There's so many people doing this type of, of work out there. How do, how do you get to the point where you'd be able to say, well, we're the ones who are going to define the patterns? Uh, well, I think uh, it does actually sometimes happen that people... So, for instance, in the enterprise Java space... J2EE, you know, there were definitely several major initiatives going on at the same time. So there was, in particular, the, the patterns coming out of Sun with the, the blueprints, and there was also patterns coming from the server side and other places as well. So it can happen that you get competing pattern languages that are actually quite similar to each other. I think it's just like a, pretty much anything you could come up with in any kind of theory or set of guidelines. It's a matter of staying in touch with the literature and, and hopefully not repeating what others have already done and adding some value by coming up with some new things. Now, when you were building up um, the Ajax book, what sort of input were you able to look as documentation for the building of, of those patterns? Uh, so, you know, once I'd when I was doing the the Ajax book, because I had all this experience from these previous patterns, I pretty much knew what the process was going to be, and it was going to be similar to what I just outlined, which is pretty much, uh, well, initially, as you may know, or listeners may know or not, may or may, or may not know, uh, the, the Ajax book, Ajax patterns, it was originally uh, just started as a blog post that I, I did one night when I started to notice these things. And so those initial patterns really were, so it was, that was a month or two after the name Ajax was coined. So a lot of those systems were actually doing Ajax-like things, but they weren't actually calling themselves Ajax. They were all developed one or two years earlier. But there were still enough of those systems around. There were 10 or 20 example systems that you could use, things like Flickr, that were already doing some of these things. And that's where I was able to just go through and and look at, what are the features of those systems? And since the book overall took about a year, as that year <laughs> took place, that was a year of much discovery and uh, many new systems were created 
you know, on a day by day basis, I was watching Ajaxian and which is the the main Ajax blog, and just seeing those new systems. And every time there was a new interesting system that came out, uh, <laughs> it was my job to go in and see what are the cool new features that they've got that we can put into the pattern language. So, do you see more patterns still continuing to emerge? In Ajax, yeah, I do. Uh, well, I think uh, more recently I've been looking at open social and gadgets, and there there's a whole series of patterns that go on that I've also been capturing. So I think uh, as Ajax is still evolving, really, because you're getting newer technologies, things like uh, Canvas, and uh, with uh, some of the, the newer browsers, they're going to be browser-specific features for now, but in the future we can hope that they'll start to uh, you know, start to become standard and see we'll see them across all the browsers in which case any pattern that you have is going to be much more applicable mm. so it certainly slowed down but they do still keep coming up so if people want to find out more about your work or about you where should we send them so my blog is at software as she's developed which is softwareas.com and the Ajax design patterns it's uh, the home page for the book which is at ajaxpatterns.org and you used to have a podcast of your own at one time, right? <laughs> That's right. I suppose in theory, I still do. I guess you do. Still there. And, uh, one day, one day it will be back. <laughs> one day, it's always manana, but uh, it will be there sometime. Well, I do want to say that um, software as she's developed um, was one of the first developer podcasts that I listened to when I first got started, and I really enjoyed it. So, when you do uh, find the time to come back, you know it'll be very welcome. Well, thank you, and uh, and I know that your one was also one of the first, and very much the first to, to cover Ajax as well. So, yeah. right on. <laughs> well, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Thanks a lot for checking out the show. Thanks a lot for subscribing. This is Craig Shoemaker, and I'll be talking to you soon. Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. That's get pixel the number eight ed.com. All rights reserved. Copyright two thousand eight. Infragistics, powering the presentation layer. Infragistics.com.